Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Our last lecture closed with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of 1572. And uh, to refresh your memory, that's when France's Huguenot noblemen and their large retinue, armed retinues, and all their friends and relatives and sisters and cousins and aunts came to Paris for a royal wedding and were ambushed by the Catholic forces backed by the Queen Mother, Marie de Medici. Uh, about 3,000 people were killed in Paris, many of them random killings, and then another 10,000 Huguenots uh, died, were murdered, slaughtered in the provinces. This was one of the most famous acts of religious terrorism in these centuries, 16th and 17th centuries, but it was not the only one, and it was not the last one. Moreover, it didn't break Huguenot power. It didn't end the conflict between Catholics and Protestants in France. The Huguenots just retreated temporarily to their fortified towns, and the civil wars continued. They reached their climax in France in 1588-89. Now, 1588, you know, is a huge big year in another country. That was the year that Philip II of Spain sent his armada, his big fleet, to England to reclaim the throne for the Catholic cause. Uh, he had been married to Mary Tudor. When she died, the crown had gone to her half-sister, the Protestant Elizabeth I. Unfortunately for Philip II, the English fleet, plus a really terrible storm, which the English labeled a Protestant wind, sunk his armada and sunk his hopes. But in France, 1588 and then 1589 saw a three-way conflict between rival heirs to the throne, all of them, by the way, named Henry. This is called the War of the Three Henrys. Eventually, two of these guys were assassinated, leaving only one Henry, Henry of Navarre, a Huguenot of a Bourbon, the Bourbon family. He was the only one still standing. But the city of Paris was staunchly Catholic. Paris was where the seat of the government now was. And Paris refused to let Henry IV, as he was going to be, come into the city and take over the reins of the government. So Henry put Paris under siege, lasting several years. But he was unable to break Paris's will. And the Catholics looked like they would be willing to hold out indefinitely, starve forever, just to prevent him from becoming king. And this faced Henry, and let me show you who Henry is. Let's see, get to Henry over here. Faced Henry with two options, both of them bad. One, he could bomb the capital and destroy the seat of the government of the very country that he was hoping to rule. Or, other bad choice, he could become a Catholic himself. And what do you think he chose? He chose the lesser of two evils became a Catholic, announcing Paris is worth a mass. And just as the St. Bartholomew Day massacre had become a byword, a kind of a cliche for fanaticism, this phrase became famous as a byword for pragmatism. And this was really an epoch-making event. Now, you'll remember, I hope you'll remember, it's hard to remember all of this stuff, but in 1555 in Germany, that's the Peace of Augsburg, when... Uh, the wars between Catholics and Protestants gradually came to a halt. 
And there the peace ruled that the people had to follow whatever religion, Catholic or Protestant, their ruler chose. And this was also the case in uh, 16th century England. You know, the country lurches from Catholic to Protestant to Catholic to Protestant every time there's a change in crown, and the country follows along. They have to be Catholic, they have to be Protestant, uh, whatever the king says. Here is a reversal. Here is the ruler being forced to adopt the religion of the majority of his people. So Henry goes along with it. He declares Catholicism the official religion of the French state. He prohibits any Protestant worship within five leagues of Paris. I looked it up. That's about 17 miles. No Protestant worship. Now, this was really mere prudence on his part. If Protestants had come in and started holding big church services, there would have probably been street fighting. That might have gotten out of hand. He might have gotten toppled. Who knows what? He also made peace with Catholic Spain, his most dangerous neighbor. So this conversion and this series of, of uh, decrees allowed Henry to be crowned in Paris in 1594. But he tempered these decisions by also, four years later, 1598, issuing the epoch-making Edict of Nantes. Now, why is this so epoch-making? This edict, done by his own fiat, not by the French parlements or anything, this edict granted all Huguenots in France full civil rights, even eligibility for public office, as well as perpetual and irrevocable, I'm quoting here, liberty of conscience. Now, this isn't the same thing as the freedom to practice their religion anywhere they wanted. They couldn't do it in Paris, for example. Our First Amendment guarantees us free exercise of religion. What they're getting is the right to believe what they wanted. The Calvinist nobility, however, a different kettle of fish, they could practice their religion within their own households wherever they might live in France. And, and this is the really crucial part, in certain designated towns, even middle-class and lower-class Calvinists had freedom to worship, to practice their religion. In fact, 200 towns, about half of the towns in the south of France, uh, the Huguenots were given complete control of those towns, the right to set up their own schools, the right to have printing presses, and we know how dangerous printing presses can be, even the right to exclude Catholics, not allow any Catholics to come into their towns. Now, the Edict of Nantes is treated in many textbooks as a milestone on the road to toleration, modern toleration. And it is a milestone. But Henry IV's pragmatic solution to the problem of governing a country with very different religious ideas and reconciling that with the authority of the state was also a big compromise, a compromise between two sides each of which is just waiting for the opportunity to go at it again and win completely without having to compromise. It's a kind of a truce for the Catholics and the Huguenots, however much Henry might have wanted it to last. And given that fact, it was bound to be unstable. Moreover, by granting the Calvinists, the Huguenots, a religious monopoly in their own regions, as I said, about half the towns in the South, 
And by leaving their huge castles and fortifications right in place, garrisoned by their own troops, and the troops, by the way, are being paid for by the government, the Edict of Nantes was really creating new obstacles to the establishment of full sovereignty in France. Now, uh, what are these obstacles? Well, remember what our definition of sovereignty is. Sovereignty is what? Do you remember? Yeah? You were, were you going to say something? Absolutely. Maintain order within given boundaries, the state's boundaries, presumably, and monopoly on legal violence. Well, here Henry is deliberately giving up the monopoly on legal violence to all of those Calvinist towns. Huguenot noblemen, therefore, were allowed to run their own affairs. They are a state within a state, and it is a state with an army ready for combat at any time and ready to make renewed alliances with England, with the Netherlands, and with the Protestant German states, all of these Protestant states. So the Edict of Nantes meant, at least for the south of France, what I would say what people who are speculating today about a so-called soft partition in Iraq are thinking of. Let the Kurds run Kurdistan, let the Sunnis have their provinces, let the Shias have their provinces, but of course, uh, good luck to you if you happen to be a Shia in a Sunni province or a Sunni in a Shia province or a uh, Kurd anywhere outside of Kurdistan. It's not necessarily a stable solution. So what we have is toleration, but also a kind of pluralism, but not necessarily the best kind. Two armed camps. And it's precisely this situation that is included in what Hobbes defines as worry. W-A-R-R-E. You remember the passage, I hope, in Leviathan, I think it's in the second column of your reading, where Hobbes says, war consisteth not in battle only, but in attractive time wherein the will to contend by battle is sufficiently known. The nature of war consisteth not only in actual fighting, but in the known disposition to fight during all the time when you don't have any assurance to the contrary. And this disposition towards war continued in France and elsewhere throughout the whole 17th century, wherever there were religious divisions, and as we'll see later on, in plenty of places where there are not religious divisions. Nevertheless, I think there's a lot to be said for ending the actual fighting, even if you're still stuck with people who have the disposition to fight. Henry IV was really popular with the French. Uh, the peace allowed prosperity to, uh, to come again. His reign is associated with his promise to put a chicken in every pot. But at the same time, he remained a target for assassins and had many attempts on his life. And in 1610, one of these guys succeeded, a 17th century equivalent uh, to a car bomb. Henry IV's coach was driving through Paris, it's his own capital after all, and it had to stop for traffic. And this gave an opportunity to an assassin, Francois Ravillac, 
Uh, Raviak was a Catholic fanatic, very unbalanced. He had actually tried to join the Jesuits. They wouldn't have him. He tried a number of other religious orders. None of them would have him. They could recognize a nutcase when they saw one. Raviak reached in the coach and stabbed Henry to death. And just like any suicide bomber, Raviak knew very well he would die. And not only that he would die, but it would be a horrible death. But he said, I have no regrets. So he suffered the punishment that was meted out to regicides in those days. First, he was scalded with boiling, uh, burning sulfur, then molten lead, then boiling oil. His flesh was told, now it's sort of cooked flesh, torn off by pinchers. Then he was pulled apart by horses. And his parents, poor parents, were forced to go into exile. But Raviak's was not the only act of religious terrorism in this period. If we look across the channel, we get a really good sense of the world of Hobbes' latent war. If we consider the act of terrorism that absolutely electrified England in 1605, uh, the year when Hobbes was 17 years old, your age, basically. In 1603, the last tutor, uh, Elizabeth I, died without an heir. And a new dynasty, her cousins, the Stuarts, were brought in from Scotland. Uh, the first Stuart was James, uh, now known as James I. Only two years into his administration, a group of English Catholic extremists managed to rent a room on the ground floor of the Westminster Hall, right under the House of Lords. There's Westminster Hall. There's the House of Lords, and there they hid two and a half tons of explosives. They planned to detonate these explosives during the opening ceremonies of Parliament. It had taken them a year to get all of these explosives together. And this plan would have, if it had gone off, taken down the king, the queen, the nine-year-old prince, the three-year-old prince, it would have blown up almost the entire English nobility, all of England's bishops, most of England's judges. Uh, all of these were members of the House of Lords. But it was such a, would have been such a huge blast, it wouldn't have just gotten the House of Lords. It would have gotten every member of the House of Commons. It would have vaporized Westminster Abbey and St. Margaret's Church, all of the houses and all of the streets within 50 yards. This is actually a fire that did occur in uh, 1834. In its comprehensiveness of intent, the gunpowder plot, as it was called, has dwarfed every modern act of terrorism, September 11th included. The entire political elite of an entire country would have simply disappeared. What was the motive? The motive was to redress the wrongs suffered by Catholics Catholics had been persecuted under uh, Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth. She had rightly, I think, considered them uh, political as well as religious enemies. More Catholics were judicially murdered in England in the 16th century than anywhere else on the continent. So these plotters believed that when out in the countryside the Catholic gentry who had been laying low and you know, having priests sort of hide in their cellars or in their holes, that they would now come out, rise up after this coup, and install a Catholic government. Alas, 
one of the conspirators, uh, his conscience hurt him, and he warned one of the peers and members of the House of the Lords who happened to be Catholic, and he would have been sitting there at the time. And this man turned the letter over to the authorities who searched the cellars and found the explosives. One of the participants, Guy Fawkes, he's here labeled Guido for some reason, had been delegated because he had a military background to be the point man uh, to set up the explosives. Fox was caught, he was tortured for five days, and eventually he revealed the names of his comrades. And they suffered the fate of all regicides and would-be regicides. They were hung until semi-conscious, they were castrated, they were disemboweled while still alive. And finally they were beheaded, their bodies were quartered and boiled, and parts of them were put on pikes all around. Now, these grisly executions on the 5th of November were celebrated throughout England in national Thanksgiving holidays for a century. It completely wiped out Halloween as a holiday. Uh, people went around making effigies of particular, first the Pope, uh, which they would then burn in a big bonfire later on, Guy Fawkes. And in every English-speaking locality, from Boston to Australia, November 5th became Bonfire Night, which for a long time Catholics didn't dare go out in the street. November 5th, the date of this discovery of the gunpowder plot, became for England just as significant a date as 9-11 is here. Now, in the short run, the gunpowder plot produced a real panic in England. This was a clash of civilizations. That's how people saw it. Protestants viewed Catholics as a fifth column of an international evil empire, and particularly this was a strong belief after Spain, after all, had attempted to invade in 1588, the year Hobbes was born, this Spanish armada. This fear of what was called crypto-Catholics, people pretending to be Protestant, but really they've got a priest hidden in the cellar somewhere, but people who were really keeping to the old faith that became part of the culture of England just as much as suspicion of new Christians, of conversos, of moriscos, had been part of the culture of Spain. And this conflict of civilization set the tone of crisis, suspicion, turmoil that characterized the rest of the 17th century. So we see that even before Britain's civil war ravaged the country, men like Hobbes are already being alerted to society's potential for violence. Men living in a state that Hobbes considers war, latent war. If not actual fighting, I'm still quoting, then in the known disposition thereto, during all the time, there's no assurance to the contrary. Now I want to turn for a minute and look at the Leviathan. <clears throat> Here is the frontispiece, <coughs> a very famous picture published in 1651. And what do you see here? You see a ruler. We know it's a ruler because it's got a crown on his head. And he's standing above a peaceful and orderly world, villages, churches, farms, little houses in a row. He's separate from this world. He is not imagined as a natural object. How do we know that? He's just too big. He's a giant. He is not human. His armor, his coat of mail, is composed of hundreds 
of people. They are quite literally his body. They don't blend into him. They don't fuse with each other. They remain a bunch of individual units. They make him possible. He can't really exist without them, but he makes them possible. And here is what Hobbes wrote. Men, for the attaining of peace and conservation of themselves thereby, have made an artificial man, which we call a commonwealth. And so have made artificial chains. Now, uh, the artist here doesn't draw these artificial chains, called civil laws, which they themselves, by mutual covenants, covenants, contracts, have fastened to at one end to the lips of that man, the commonwealth, and at the other to their own ears. These are laws. These are contractual obligations. These bonds, in their own nature but weak, may nevertheless be made to hold by the danger, though not the difficulty, of breaking them. That is, it's not difficult to break the law. Anyone can do it. The subjects can do it. The sovereigns can do it. But it is dangerous. And the awareness of what might happen, look over at France, for example, may make these bonds hold. Well, what else do we see? Let's look uh, at the uh, whole picture. He is holding both a sword in his right hand and uh, this is a crozier in the left. If we look on the right side, we see the symbols of political, civic authority. A castle for defense against attack, whoops, at the top, and then a crown for rule, cannon, monopoly of violence, police power, muskets and flags, military power, and at the bottom is a kind of battle scene. It's unfortunately, it won't uh, get any clearer than that. This is Hobbes's war. In the left hand, we see a crozier. A crozier is a bishop's staff. It's basically a dollied up, a dressed up, embellished crook because Bishops are traditionally imagined as shepherds of the flock of the faithful. And underneath, we see a church. We see a bishop's mitre, his hat. A thunderbolt, I guess that means spiritual power. I don't really know. I have no idea, really, what these pitchforks are, are supposed to mean. I can't read most of the Latin, but in the middle, it says, uh, it says spiritual and temporal, the, this thing here in Latin. And last, at the bottom, is looks like a synod or a meeting of the clergy of some sort. Bottom line, the Leviathan holds religious power as well as political and military power. It is very important for Hobbes that there's only one supreme power, that civic and religious authority are held by one and the same sovereign. And Hobbes doesn't care whether the sovereign is a monarch or an assembly, so long as there's only one. One body with all the representation and all the authority. Okay, let's leave the picture for a moment. An important part of Hobbes, and here he's quite different from Locke, is he believes in the absolute superiority of politics. However, though politics is primary, Though the sovereign has no equals in the state, his power isn't actually unlimited. Hobbes limits it in two ways. The first limitation, the power, after all, rests on a covenant, an agreement, a contract. And you can't break the contract once you're in it. But 
If the sovereign can't provide the order that he promises, if he fails, then the contract has been broken by him. He's lost what we would call his legitimacy, his effective monopoly on legitimate violence. Now, this doesn't give people the right to rebel, apparently. I mean, there's uh, political theorists who debate this. But most people think uh, it does give people the right to self-defense. So they are allowed to transfer their allegiance to make another covenant with another Leviathan, uh, particularly if this Leviathan has a big army there and has just conquered them. A second limitation, though the sovereign has religious power, and he has the right to control people's religious practice by imposing conformity. He can't control what people believe. So it's just useless for him to even try. It's impossible to control what's in people's mind. No Leviathan can do the impossible. He's very explicit on this. People are going to believe what they want to believe. You can't meddle with that. But you can change their behavior. And so here you can see another step along the way toward freedom of conscience. True, there was already by this time religious pluralism of a sort on the continent after 1555, the Peace of Augsburg, but that's only within the overarching realm of the Holy Roman Empire. In each individual principality in these German lands, you're either Catholic or Protestant, the prince decides, and it's either my way or the highway for him. And it's also true in France, there's this limited toleration thanks to the Edict of Nantes. But Hobbes explicitly distinguishes freedom of conscience from the exercise, free exercise of religion and from freedom of speech, including religious speech. Action, speech of any sort, that is under the sovereign's control. Can't change your mind, but he can shut you up. Okay, this is a classic. What makes a classic? What gives some works of theory like this a kind of lasting resonance? Well, people say partly because they are deeply rooted in particular historical circumstances. Uh, otherwise, they'd never really see uh, the next generation. But that they are also able to come up with ideas or symbols of ideas or images that can reach across time. And Hobbes's idea about the nature of the political order, in spite of the difficulties we have in grappling with his horrible spelling, his terrible punctuation, his idiot language, I don't know why, I would love to see a Leviathan that didn't spell war with the extra R and the E. Uh, in spite of all those difficulties, this book is still on the reading list of every political scientist. It is still being debated. Now, Hobbes himself made his living tutoring aristocratic teens. And one of his jobs was to chaperone them when they would make their grand tour of the continent. And that way, he got to know a number of famous intellectuals. He knew Galileo, for example. He knew Descartes. Descartes particularly very much influenced him. From Descartes, Hobbes adopted the practice of trying to find certainty by stripping away everything that we can't know for sure, in order to get down to the very bedrock of what we do know, in order to get at first principles. And when he did that, he concluded that order is simply not part of the world of nature. 
nor of God, if there was a God. He didn't really think there was, but if there was. Therefore, order has to be imposed. And so for Hobbes, society itself, here he's different from uh, Rousseau and, and from Locke, society itself is a creation. And so he has to figure out where society comes from. Now, in the past, people had always assumed, of course there's a society out there. There's an order. For Aristotle, it followed from human nature. Man is a political animal, he said, which means it's in human nature to live in a polis, a civitas, a political world, a political society. And St. Augustine thereafter uh, took over some of the same terms. And for him, the civitas, uh, he calls it the city of man, it's corrupt, it's fallen. It's a version, however, a re poorly reflected version of a real order, the city of God. There is an order of things divinely inspired, though human beings often violate it. But for Hobbes, the essence of the natural world is not order, but chaos and particularly conflict. The default setting is competition and selfishness, a state of war. And so for him and for the whole strain of political thinkers who come after him, there's something fundamentally fragile about any human society that manages to run itself in any haphazard way. The potential for chaos is always there, even in the best-run societies. And Hobbes gives us a description of a world that corresponds to what political scientists would call now, I think, a failed state. This is the world of nature, of course, for him, which is also the world of war. It's a world in which no one, no government, no social groups, no tribes, no family, no clan, clan has a monopoly on violence. And he gives us a vivid description of what life in such a failed state is like. His famous phrase, most everybody knows this about Hobbes, you should know it, I use it all the time. Nasty, brutish, and short. It's not your old boyfriend. It is the state of nature without a Leviathan. Now, we Americans, with our ideas of the melting pot, of pluralism, just take it for granted that human beings, because they're humans, can coexist with all kinds of different people. Historically, there have been real limits to the differences that societies can tolerate, to the otherness that people are willing to accept in the absence of a Leviathan. And these limits are usually set by what people remember of past histories of conflict, histories that are often impossible to overcome. If you were an Iraqi today and were offered a Leviathan, that is, Saddam Hussein returns from the dead, can you be so sure you wouldn't take that option? Okay. That would mean, of course, giving up a lot and not just self-rule. It would also be, mean giving up those smaller units, those groups. Note in the Leviathan, there are no groups. There's no room for identities that aren't simply your individual identity and your relationship to the ruler. Okay, Hobbes, as I said, was born in uh, 1588, the year of the Spanish Armada. It's not surprising for him that the main problem Let's see, do I have a picture of Hobbes? There he is. 
the main problem faced by the, any sovereign was religious conflict. And Hobbes sees religions as the source of plots, rebellions, endless civil war, international war, foreign intervention in domestic affairs, uh, often at the instigation of some domestic religious minority, people who are willing to simply muck up their own state for the sake of their religion. Uh, and we can see that in, in places uh, today. Now, let me remi remind you again of his definition of war, not just the actual fighting, but any disposition to take up arms if there's no assurance to the contrary. And that was the situation between Catholics and Protestants everywhere. The most prolonged war in the uh, 17th century was, of course, the Thirty Years' War, uh, mostly in Central Europe. Get you a better map here. It began as a fight between the German and what was then called Bohemian, we would call them Czech states on the one hand, and the Habsburg emperor from Austria on the other. But it soon became overlaid with all kinds of other quarrels between uh, the center, Vienna, and the periphery, between ambitious outsider states who intervened, uh, first financially and then militarily, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and France. Uh, England largely stayed out of this fight, but also it was a religious conflict. Hobbes was certainly very aware of it, as was everyone, even though England wasn't in it. He was aware of the mercenary armies roaming the countryside in Central Europe, pillaging where they went, raping where they went. He was aware of the repeated deadly sieges of the cities, Germany's prosperous cities, which left half the population and sometimes more dead. There are the casualty statistics for much of what today we call Germany. It's estimated the total death toll is anywhere between six and eight million Germans. Most of these people, of course, were civilians. But religious strife was not just between Catholics and Protestants. Often it was between different kinds of Protestants, especially after the explosive spread of Calvinism from France and Geneva outward. In 1554, fewer than, there were fewer than half a million followers of John Calvin on the, uh, on the continent. By 1600, thanks in part because it was adopted by noble families who could then bring all of their clients and <laughs> retinues with them, Calvinism was big in France, in Hungary, in Poland. There were 10 million Calvinists Europe-wide. Now, Calvinists accused other Protestants of simply departing from pure Christianity. That gave them the name, at least in England, of being Puritans. And religious differences between Protestants, between Calvinists and other Protestants, contributed very much to the English Civil War in the 17th century, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. But of even greater long-run significance, I would say, than this Civil War, were the conflicts produced by an expanding Calvinism that got, in the 17th century, exported. And I want to mention three cases pregnant with future significance. The most obvious, the pilgrims. That is, the English Puritans, who went first to the Netherlands in 1617 and then to North America in Plymouth Colony, Massachusetts. Now it is in 1620. By 1640, their numbers had grown to 20,000. A second case were the Presbyterians, also Calvinists, 
who streamed from England and Scotland over to Ireland in the early and mid-17th century, and most of them settling in the north, in Ulster, up there, uh, today's Northern Ireland. These settlements were felt by the Irish, the natives, to be an occupying army, and it helped to produce Irish rebellion against England. They rebelled a lot, much of the time, but here was a big one in 1640. And in order to subdue the Irish, Oliver Cromwell, who was then uh, the military dictator, really, of, or soon to be the military dictator of England, promised Puritan settlers from one to 3,000 acres of land absolutely free if they would go live there and sort of keep things quiet. And of course, where was this land going to come from? Yeah. It was going to come from the Irish, and particularly the Irish nobility. So one ruling class is going to be expropriated and another is going to come in. This is not the first time that a state would use settlers to firm up boundaries of territories. The Russians did it with the Cossacks. The Ottomans do it with various groups as well. It is a time-honored tool, and it works particularly if the people moving in practice a different religion. And then finally, there are the Dutch Calvinists, who became known as the Boers. It simply is a word for farmer in Dutch. They went to South Africa to satisfy their hunger for land, but just as important, their hunger for righteousness. They wanted to set up a godly commonwealth. And they founded Cape Town in 1652. That is three decades after the pilgrims came to Plymouth Rock. And today these people are known as Afrikaners. Now, as we know from the way all three of these groups, or at least their descendants, treated the people they found in their new homes, the fact that one may have once suffered from religious persecution doesn't turn you into an apostle of pluralism. However, there is an important difference between the American case and the other two. New England was relatively thinly populated. Therefore, the natives could be subdued in battle pretty quickly and forced to move away, to make space. But Ireland and South Africa were quite a different story. The original inhabitants there were much more numerous. You couldn't just move them out. And the result was lasting conflict. It's only been in the last 17 years, with the end of apartheid in 1991 and the release of Nelson Mandela from prison, that the conflict between the descendants of these Dutch Calvinist settlers and the indigenous population of South Africa has shown signs of being resolved, and let's hope that it keeps going. As, in, as for Northern Ireland, things have calmed down there, er, occasional flare-ups now and then, but things have calmed down there only since 1998, 10 years ago, with the Good Friday Agreement. Let us hope that the 300-year conflict there is really over. Now, as we look across Europe, do, do a kind of a tour of the horizon, we can see it is full of violence during the 17th century, and much that wasn't necessarily connected with the Reformation. And I'm going to run through these star sorry stories briefly. The point is to let you see the commonalities in Europe. From the Netherlands to Russia, the 17th century had only four years of peace. Poland and Russia were at war four out of every five years. The Turks continued to 
to ravage vast regions in Central and Eastern Europe. And in the West, from 1660s on, there's a commercial war and then a real war between France, the, uh, the English, and the Dutch Republic. This disrupted the economies of the three most prosperous regions in Europe. It caused the growth that was looking pretty good there to slow down and then to stop. Rebellions were also plentiful and not limited, I would say, to places with religious conflict, and Spain is a, a major example. Spain had, as you know from your textbook, an appallingly expensive foreign policy because of its far-flung obligations and desires. And uh, throughout Europe, the state, and Spain is a prime example, found that it simply couldn't pay for all of these wars by tightening its belt, by being more economical. The money demanded was simply too great for that. And so that meant finding non-traditional resources, uh, resources uh, from both territories and social classes that up until now had been exempt from taxation or perhaps undertaxed. But as soon as any government, and Spain is here a prime example, tries to extend its tax base, it gets rebellion. So in the mid-17th century, in 1640, for example, both Portugal, which had been conquered by Philip II in 1580, there's Portugal, whoops, Portugal, and Catalonia, uh, both sides of the Iberian Peninsula revolt. Well, imagine dealing with both ends against the middle. The Catalan revolt lasted 12 years. Neither Catalonia nor Portugal had ever had to pay for Castile's court bureaucracy or wars before. They hadn't even had to pay for their own defense. They were not revolting because they were overtaxed. They'd, in fact, been undertaxed in relation to the rest of the country, which was really paying for everything. But, uh, and we know, if you know about the Stamp Act crisis in the early colonies, you can see this is not an uncommon phenomenon. When Spain's prime minister tried to figure out ways uh, to solve the defense problem and the finance problem by increasing what they would have to cough up, he brought the crown into a head-on collision with these people who thought that they were immune. Now, of course, added to this is the fact that neither the Portuguese nor the Catalans think of themselves as Spanish. They have their own language. They have a tradition of independence. And this was true for the, Spain's other dependencies in this period, Naples and Sicily. And they both revolted in 1647, but they were easier to repress. The following year, 1648, the year that finally the Thirty Years' War is ending in Germany and Austria and the Czech lands, the eastern part of the continent uh, sees a huge bloody Cossack rebellion, the largest one in the early modern period. This was led by a man named Bogdan Kmelnitsky. Kmelnitsky, can you do this for me, Jacob? Kmelnitsky. I do it over and over again, but... When I get on stage, I can't. Kmielnitsky. He led a bunch of Cossacks, then supported by regular Ukrainians, and just swept through uh, the lands, destroying everything they came in contact with. He was demanding autonomy for Ukraine from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, 
But added to this kind of national grievance, there were the social grievances of the Ukrainian peasants. The Ukrainian peasants had been gradually encircled by Polish noblemen who were moving south into Ukraine. The Poles are Catholic. The Cossacks and the Ukrainians are Eastern Orthodox. If you want to add yet complexity on complexity, you've got a quarter of a million Jews living in exactly the same region. They are employed by the Polish nobles to manage the estates the Poles have and also to collect the taxes from the Ukrainian serfs. So here we have a conflict that is social, economic, and it's overlaid with religious differences and ethnic differences. And the brutality of this fighting cannot be imagined. The stories uh, written by eyewitnesses are really horrific. Eventually, the Poles were able to crush the Cossack Romanian rebellion, but not before 10 to 50,000 Jews had been massacred in this three-way quarrel. Until the Holocaust of the 20th century, the Khmelnytsky Rebellion was considered the great catastrophe in the history of European Jews. Nothing else had even remotely equaled it. In Ukrainian, so it's a big sorrow point in Jewish history. In Ukrainian history, however, the event is celebrated. And Bogdan Pionetsky is revered as a national hero. True, he didn't win, but remember the Alamo, Davy Crockett is a national hero. You don't have to win uh, to be celebrated. I would suspect, however, at the time when the rebellion was over, all sides might very well have longed uh, for a sovereign, a leviathan with a monopoly on violence. And if we move yet further east, here's Kamilnitsky's uh, portrait. If we move further east, less than 20 years later, in 1667 to 71, the pirate Stenker Razen raised another Cossack rebellion, uh, starting out in the Caspian. That's where he conducted his piracy, mostly against the Persians. And then he moved up the Volga. And as he moved, he was joined by more than 100,000 Russian serfs in what became the largest uprising of the entire century. Eventually, they got as far as the outskirts of Moscow before the Russian state had succeeded in repressing them. And the leaders of the rebellion, once again, are subjected to horrifying tortures. And as many as 100,000 serfs were also slaughtered. Now, Hobbes died in 1679, but he lived long enough to hear about uh, Razin's rebellion. Uh, but he had already written Leviathan by then. So I think there can be no doubt that this was one terrible century. The next two look pretty good in comparison. Now, if we move back to England, we can see that all of these themes that are playing themselves out in different places on the continent, center versus periphery, we see that in Iberia with Castile versus uh, Catal Catalonia and, and uh, Portugal. Religious conflict, which we see in the Czech, German, Polish, Lithuanian lands. Ethnic minority conflicts, which again we see in Catalonia and Ukraine. Uh, unpopular military expenditures leading to fiscal crises, we see in Madrid and Spain. All of these things come together in England at the same time. And the common theme tying these conflicts together is the difficulty of the early modern state in establishing, to establish its sovereignty over diverse, non-homogeneous populations. 
It's really easy to rule a country where everybody is more or less alike. The difficulty is people with different traditions, different cultures, different religions. And the difficulty also, and this is the second side of this coin, it's not just the difficulty of the state and of the rulers. It's the difficulty of the populations in influencing the state in a way that will allow the populations to feel willing to grant legitimacy, consent, to whatever order is being established. And these conflicts produced in England a long civil war, one that included Scotland and Ireland, and produced immense casualties. At the end of this civil war, there were nearly 900,000 dead from massacre, uh, from battle, and from disease growing out of battle and massacre. Now, this may not sound anything compared to your six and eight million Germans, but proportionate to the population involved, it is huge. It is more murderous than what was produced by the French Revolution that will begin in 1789. Uh, it is well over US deaths in World War I, II, Korea, Vietnam, and the First World War, as First Gulf War, all put together. That is not just proportionate. Absolutely, it is more than we had in all of those 20th century wars. However, unlike the other revolts of the 17th century, which bore no social, religious, or constitutional fruit or even consequences, this violent turmoil in England in the 17th century ended up in establishing a framework for constitutional parliamentary monarchy and set up not pluralism really in any way we would like, but the conditions for the possibility for religious pluralism. So constitutionalism is the improbable, and I would say for most people quite unintended consequences of the political kaleidoscope that the English experienced in the 17th century. Their civil war, which lasted from 1641 to 46, the trial and beheading of the Stuart King, a regicide in 1649, a military dictatorship from 1653 to 1660, a restoration of a Stuart monarchy that wants to be absolutist even if it's not, in 1660, and then the expulsion of another Stuart king in 1688, and I would like to add the violent suppression of a whole way of life in Ireland and in the Scottish Highlands. This is what the Brits went through. Nevertheless, in the end, these events resulted in new constitutional arrangements in England beginning in 1689 and 90, arrangements that we, I think, rightly point to as milestones on a path towards a combination that is really historically, so far, up to this point, quite unusual. A strong state, on the one hand, a state that can enforce its authority, and yet a government of laws, not of men, on the other. A government, moreover, that not just permits an opposition, but institutionalizes an opposition, that is, allows opponents, a political opponents in opposing parties to the one in power, men that the power holders themselves
can trust will remain loyal to the country and its laws. A kind of ability to vote people out of office without producing a revolution and a new group come in. Now, this is really an incredible achievement. And it's not only the government of laws that's amazing. After all, in the Middle Ages, in certain places, uh, there was rule of law through private contracts, but it was really law between groups or people. Uh, and there were also static privileges attached to particular corporations like universities or guilds. But what is unique about this is it's a government of laws that's applying to everybody, not just the privileged few. And it's dynamic. Things are in motion. It is institutionalizing political uncertainty regarding who is going to hold elected office. And this has become the basis for governments in the West, and it's increasingly the basis for governments in the world today. You can see Pakistan is struggling with this same problem right now, and it's quite possible it will go over the edge and produce something like an English 1688. We'll see. Now, this result is obviously not inevitable, and it too grew out of a Hobbesian world. When our period opens, who are the sovereigns that England has on offer? The Stuarts. And unfortunately for them, they were not possessed with the ability to overawe their subjects. And as conflict began to develop between Crown and the other in, uh, groups in society, and particularly institutions in society, the Stuart kings were accused of being tyrants, of being lawbreakers, of oppressing the country. I think that is wildly exaggerated. James I and his son Charles I were not dictators. They never dreamed of doing anything so autocratic as Henry VIII had done when he simply changed the religion of an entire country single-handedly and killed off all the clergy that wouldn't go along with him, in which he confiscated vast acres, miles and miles and miles of property. They were not even so autocratic as Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Queen Elizabeth had once put the leader of the Puritans in the Tower of London because he had had the, the gall to criticize her in Parliament. He was an elected member of Parliament. But we all know that the same thing produces different results when it's done by an unpopular leader as when it's done by a popular one. The two successful tutors, Henry and Elizabeth, were gifted with a shrewd sense of how much the traffic would bear. And they also made very sure that they didn't look ridiculous to those who saw them up close and personal. None of the four Stuart monarchs, neither the two James and Charleses that happened before the Civil War uh, or the two James and Charles that happened after the Civil War, seemed, inca seemed capable of inspiring confidence among the only people who counted. And those people are in England. Who counts in England? The lords, yes. Landowners, exactly. So the lords, the top landowners with big titles, and the gentry, who are also big landowners but don't have titles. Uh, and maybe not quite so big as the biggest of the lords, but they're the pro they own England. Now, the difference here between the Stuarts and the Tudors is not a difference in ideology. It's not that one group like absolutism and the other like freedom. It's also not a difference in morality 
And it's not really even a difference in policy or administrative capacity. It is a difference in political instinct. Even Machiavelli, who made no claim to morality, understood that a prince has to be either loved or feared. Societies like England that have some semblance of law, these extremes, love and fear, tend to blur into something that serves, does duty for both, and that's respect. Now, Queen Elizabeth, you remember, had no heirs, so her throne went to her cousin, James Stuart of Scotland, who becomes James I. Already, since he's a foreigner, he's a Scot, he talks funny, he's regarded as a kind of alien, and he has no sense of what it takes to get respect. For example, even in that rather lax era, his personal hygiene was said to leave a lot to be desired. <laughs> also, a monarch who goes hunting but has to be tied onto his horse to make sure he doesn't fall off is not someone who has any sense for protecting the dignity that is crucial if you're going to try to convince people that you are God's own anointed. And we'll see with uh, Louis XIV next week, he did have that gift. But James was more than just ridiculous. He was denounced as immoral. His chief minister, here's James, by the way, his chief minister, the Duke of Buckingham, was rumored to be his lover. And co his court officials were all suspiciously pretty young men. Now, James did not apologize for loving, as he called it, those dear to him. Christ had John, he said, I have George. This is George, right here. Uh, he spent vast amounts of money on these uh, young men who were reputedly his lovers. And there's a gay website uh, that quotes uh, a, a local uh, person in the 17th century as saying, Elizabeth was king and now James is queen. <laughs> now this coupling of sexual with political complaints is co a common feature in the history of popular revolt. In 1788-89, France is going to be awash with pornographic pamphlets about Marie Antoinette, accusing her of having a regular harem of lovers, and I will show you those pamphlets when we get there. Furthermore, by the 1620s, though James was only in his 50s, uh, he seems to have already gotten Alzheimer's. Now, he was an intelligent a figure to start out with. He was the person who put together the uh, committee that gave us the King James Bible. Uh, but now he is losing it. And that may explain why he simply has a complete disregard for appearances. Now here's his son, Charles I. He didn't have the same weaknesses. He was courageous. He was dignified. But I note that your textbook, in its caption to this picture of him, says the picture shows him to be arrogant. You look at it. Are the authors reading into this picture evidence uh, for what they already believe to be the case from other sources? I don't know. Unfortunately, however, Charles I was not wise, and unlike his daddy, he what, probably wasn't even smart before he lost his wits. Uh, moreover, he developed a personal hatred for Parliament and considered any means uh, to foil it to be legitimate. And consequently, whatever he might promise, whatever he might sign under pressure, 
they could never trust that he really meant it and would carry it out. Now, these personal shortcomings become politically relevant when monarchs have to deal with major issues. And these Stuart kings certainly had a lot of them. There were three major issues. Fiscal policy, you've got the idea already on that, I think, religious policy and foreign policy. I'll talk, with the, I'll talk about the fiscal difficulties first. Bill Clinton's campaign manager warned his staff in 1992, it's the economy, stupid. And compared to England's counterparts on the continent, England's government really did have economic problems. The government was completely understaffed because it was underfunded. The crown had no institution representing its interests on the local level. It didn't have any judges in its pay. It didn't have professional bureaucrats. Its navy was much closer to a bunch of criminals than a fighting force. Uh, what they did was use commercial ship captains and encourage them in what was essentially piracy, shipjacking. Sail out there and capture anybody's ship that you can, as long as they're a country that we don't get along with very well. England had no standing army. And that meant that the crown was forced to recruit a new call it recruit, uh, I call that a euphemism, every time there was a war. What we mean by recruitment is basically impressment, uh, people jumping out from behind, behind the bushes and capturing people and putting them in the army or taking them to a pub and getting them so drunk they sign on the dotted line. This government couldn't afford, however, to build barracks for its army, so what did it do? It billeted these men in private homes. Now, to understand how really hated this was, You've got to remember that in the 17th century, your typical foot soldier is someone who doesn't have any other options. He is the dregs of society. And his new profession is basically murder, theft, and rape. So try to imagine what it would be like to share a bed in your little cottage with one of these lowlifes. Uh, it would be like sharing it with an English soccer fan, I think, today. Now, the English weren't the only ones who hated this. Anger at having soldiers quartered on you was a main cause for rebellion in Naples in 1657 and in other places. But coupled to these grievances was the fact that the English government hardly delivered anything uh, very much in the way of services to its citizens at all. And so that made the financial burden much more resented. Now, the Tudor monarchs in the 16th century had been able to live off of the bounty of what they had grabbed from the church. They didn't have to go to the public and ask for money. Queen Elizabeth had inherited a full treasury. But even she hadn't been able to live within her means, so she solved the problem by selling off some of the crown's lands. And that meant that her Stuart successors began with a deficit of nearly 500,000 pounds but with capital resources in the form of land revenues diminished by 25%. So the Stuart monarchs of the 17th century, through no fault of their own, started out much poorer than the Tudors had started out in the 16th century, and that made a huge difference in how popular they might be. Where are they going to get the money? So what they did first was sell off more crown lands, which is simply robbing the future to pay the present, and this is a huge loss for the dynasty itself because it's not just money, it's 
power, really. It's a rule of thumb in the 17th century that if you want to be a secure monarch, you should have a private income from your own private property, your land, twice that of your biggest nobleman. Uh, but, of course, the Stuarts are less and less able to do that. Remember, of course, that all a king really is is a big nobleman that got bigger than everybody else. And by continuing Elizabeth's expedience of selling off his property, James I shifts the balance of power in the kingdom away from the crown back towards the big landowners, the nobility and the gentry, <laughs> beginning to reverse the process that had taken place in England in the 15th century and then later on in the 16th when the crown had confiscated the church's property and become financially independent. So that's one sort of long-range problem. So another uh, expedient James used was to enforce taxes that had been forgotten about for a long time. People suddenly find out that they owe something that you know, their grandfather had maybe paid. He also raised duties on imports from abroad. And in fact, all of these expedients are within the traditional legal prerogatives of the crown. But the people didn't like it. And finally, there was the issue of ship money. The coastal cities on, in England had always been responsible for paying for their own defense from being bombarded by some enemy fleet. And this local defense is called ship money. Both James I and his son Charles I tried to spread the burden and nationalize the country's defenses by requiring inland cities to pay their fair share. After all, if the ships ever landed and England got invaded, it would hurt them as well. But the cities had never had to pay ship money before, and they were damned if they were going to do it now. Now, remember, of course, in England, who are the powerful? They're the landowners. Who do the taxes fall on in England? The landowners, the great nobility, sitting in the House of Lords or elected to the House of Commons, because voting rights in the 17th century was based upon owning land. One of these landowners, who was also a member of Parliament, decided to take Charles I to court on this issue in 1638-37, ship money. He lost his case. The contest was very, very close. Uh, the court was divided. But he became very popular in Parliament and among taxpayers at large. Now, the fiscal questions almost inevitably stirred up a hornet's nest of other difficulties. Eventually, Charles found he had to force a foreign loan. Uh, sorry, not a foreign loan, a forced loan. He had to simply say, okay, guys, you won't pay taxes to me. You'll have to lend me money, and you're, you must do it. Kings have often done this in the past, uh, but doing this managed to ma make the gentry start yelling, uh, not just the gentry yell at him, they are the taxpayers, but the merchant classes as well, because they've got the money to lend. And so this struggle also escalates. Just as a taxpayer takes him to court, now we have 70 wealthy merchants who refuse to give up their forced loans. 27 of them are members of parliament. And Charles puts them in jail for kind of a tax evasion. And they sued. They demanded not to be held without being charged and tried. Uh, and they cited habeas corpus. Now, the courts ruled that Charles was technically within his prerogative. They cited executive privilege in, in levying this forced loan. 
But you can see how what Parliament has done is lever this whole money question into a question of citizens' rights, rights to be protected against arbitrary authority. Now, of course, if Charles had put the squeeze on the poor instead of on the gentry and the peers and the merchants, he could have probably gotten away with it. But he went after the well-off because, as Willie Sutton, the bank robber, once, a uh, once uh, answered when he was asked, why do you rob banks, Mr. Sutton? That's where the money is. And that's why he went after the rulers. Well, Parliament responded in 1627 by passing something it called a petition of right. And this petition of right said, no man can be imprisoned without a published cause. Also, soldiers and sailors cannot be quartered in a citizen's house without his consent. But most important was the clause that for the first time explicitly claimed a power that no English parliament had ever claimed before, the power of the purse. That is, no taxes could be collected if parliament didn't give its approval first. So the struggle over money, over taxation, becomes a struggle between crown and parliament over sovereignty, basically, over who holds the purse strings. And this is the classic form that the struggle over sovereignty eventually takes everywhere. It takes it in the American colonies from 1765 on, the Stamp Act crisis, in France from 1789 on, uh, when the Third Estate uh, goes into revolt, in Prussia in the 1860s. And you don't have to be an economic determinist to know, of course, that without the power to tax, government power, every other government power, including its military power, just evaporates. The old saying, you heard about it in the Renaissance, no silver, no Swiss. Don't got the money, can't pay the mercenaries. With taxing power, on the other hand, goes sovereignty, the power to decide. And now what Parliament is doing is claiming no one can be compelled to give money to the government without an act of Parliament first. So we see that this petition of right uh, the quarrel in England, in many ways a classic struggle between a landowning class, noblemen and upper class gentry, and the crown for supremacy is becoming a kind of universal struggle. Charles signed the Petition of Right. You know he was gnashing his teeth at the time, but he felt he had to. But this uproar now has a life of its own. And although members of the House of Commons might sincerely believe that all they're really doing is protecting the ancient rights of their country, really their ultimate aim was revolutionary. And indeed, they start acting like revolutionaries too. During the debates over the petition of right, members of the country party, the ones who sponsored it, would get out of their seats and literally gag the Speaker of the House of Commons to keep him from ruling them out of order. What was absolutely clear is that they were not really trying to protect some unwritten constitution. When a constitution is unwritten, it's pretty much whatever anyone in power uh, says, says it is or what it can get away with. Their aim was really to transform this constitution, this customary law, and grab sovereignty in church and state for parliament, for themselves. And who are themselves, and this brings me to the second crisis, themselves, the members of parliament, are 
Puritans. This leads me to the second cause of the revolution, Puritanism. The English version of Calvinism, just like Huguenots, were the French version. Now, what was the importance of Puritanism here? It's hard to tell people that taxes are something worth dying for. You need a real cause with higher goals to generate enthusiasm. A revolt of angry property owners in 17th century England might have remained simply a smoldering discontent uh, had it not been taken up by a subset in the country, a group with broader moral and religious goals, and these are the Puritans. Ever since 1580, English Puritans had been growing in numbers, and their goals were big. Eliminate all traces of Catholicism in England, root and branch, and they found these traces, of course, in the established Anglican Church, the Church of England. To transform the established state church into a reflection of their own Calvinist selves, and to introduce a new godliness into private behavior. Outlaw dancing, outlaw theater, no sports or any recreation on Sundays. If I can make an analogy with today's Republican Party, what we see here is an alliance between taxpayers, fiscal conservatives on the one hand, and a religious base on the other, although they certainly overlap. Now, lots of the English considered the Puritans killjoys, spoil sports, but they increasingly got themselves elected to the House of Commons, and by the mid-1620s, they had a majority. What does this say about British public opinion? The majority of the English did not have the right to vote, but among those who did, the landowners, the Puritans were the best organized, the most outspoken. Moreover, in a day before the existence of any kind of clear-cut political parties that can get out and organize, these people had an advantage because they knew what they wanted. And throughout the first decades of the 17th century, the Puritan movement is growing in popularity precisely as the popularity of the Stuart kings are declining, and they're growing because they're capturing the high moral ground. And after the Petition of Right of 1628, and its aftermath, and one of its aftermaths includes, by the way, the impeachment and execution of Charles's two chief cabinet ministers, Charles decides he's going to grab control back over the established church, over his own kingdom. And so in 1629, he simply dismisses Parliament. And the next 11 years, until 1640, he governs without Parliament. And all of these problems, fiscal, religious, personal, impact on a fourth problem, which is Britain's foreign policy. And that increases the Stuarts' unpopularity. Now, the first two Stuarts, believe it or not, are too peaceful to suit Parliament. James I, so, so broke, made peace with Spain in 1604, and he took a position of neutrality in Europe in general as a fiscal necessity. But committed Protestants, and especially the Puritans, were furious at the Stuarts' failure to pursue a vigorous, warlike, anti-Catholic foreign policy against Spain and to stick up for the Protestant cause by jumping into the Thirty Years' War. His son-in-law was one of the leaders in the Thirty Years' War. Later on, after the English Civil War, after Cromwell's military dictatorship, when the Stuarts are restored in 1660, the Crown's foreign policy is even more unpopular. And it's no secret why. 
Again, it's all connected to the economy at this point. The crown had no sources of income. It hasn't improved any. How is the crown going to keep from being a glorified figurehead if it always has to go hat in hand to Parliament begging for money every time it wants to carry out a policy? Answer to that, go somewhere else and look for money. So both Charles II and James II put themselves on the payroll of Louis XIV of France. Now, you don't get something for nothing. In return, they promised to bring England back to the Catholic Church at the earliest possible time. Now, is this treason? Were they bending England's interests to suit a foreign power, France? I think in the case of Charles II, he was shrewd enough to know that politics is the art of the possible. Uh, it was impossible to make England Catholic again, and so I don't think he took his promise very seriously. He just took the money and kept saying, well, you know, someday, someday. But in the case of his younger brother, James II, the promise probably wasn't even necessary because James had converted to Catholicism himself. He was a sin sincere Catholic, and a Catholic England was his own dearest wish. In reality, there was no danger that England would return to Rome. Both of these Stuarts knew that the day in which the King of England could simply decree the religion of his country, as Henry VIII had done in 1534, this day was over. Nevertheless, the pro-French foreign policy of the Restoration was an affront to the Protestant majority in Parliament, and never more than when France itself ended its toleration of the Huguenots, Huguenots in 1685. So what we have here is a vicious circle. The Stuarts are peaceful, pro-Spanish, pro-French. That's their foreign policies. This makes the crown more unpopular at home. Therefore, it becomes even more dependent on gifts from foreign powers. But that takes me ahead of my story. These are the general issues. How did these issues turn first into a civil war in 1640 and then into a military dictatorship and then a constitutional revolution in 1688. Charles I might have been able to govern without parliament, preserve the Church of England, and conduct his own foreign policy if all he had had to deal with were the English. But he made a fatal mistake in 1638 by, of trying to impose the Anglican liturgy and organization, bishops, kneeling in church, etc., on Scotland. And the lowland Scots were Calvinist, not Anglican, and they revolted. They signed a document called Solemn League and Covenant to defend their Calvinism, and in 1639, the Scots invaded England. So just to get the funds to defend the country, Charles had to reconvene Parliament, but the same people who hated him before were there now. And in 1641, this situation radicalized even further when the Irish revolted and massacred 12,000 Protestant settlers in Ulster. Again, money was needed to send troops to crush that rebellion. Again, Parliament wasn't willing to grant it without conditions. So here we have Charles. He has nowhere to turn. The Puritans capture the majority in Parliament, who are then resolved to fight to turn all three of these countries, Scotland, Ireland, and England, Calvinist. So the Civil War was on.
Now I'm going to skip the Civil War, it's like Civil Wars everywhere, just awful, and go into the settlement, but I'll have to do that uh, on Tuesday.